Welcome to the Fintech Files podcast, where we investigate careers and concepts in modern finance. Today, I'm delighted to have Hirander Misra, the chairman and CEO of GMIX Group and Secdex, as a guest. Hirander, welcome to the show. Hi, George. Delighted to be here. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you, and it's the second time we talk. Last time was, I think, a year ago or a bit longer than that. So there's a lot that happened since. And what has changed in the podcast is now we try to make the two-part conversation. And this part will be about careers. And later on, we'll discuss about tokenization. But let's just jump straight into it. Looking at your profile on LinkedIn, there are a lot of roles, and I can only imagine how busy you are. But what can you tell us about your main role at GMEX and Sectex? Sure, yeah. Many jobs, one salary, as I like to joke. But in terms of GMEX as chairman and CEO, I co-founded the firm just over nine years ago. And our focus is uh, very much on traditional markets, but also digital assets markets and markets that kind of combine those facets from a trading, clearing and settlement standpoint, mainly to do with regulated markets because regulation in digital assets is fast evolving. We took the foray into launching our own exchange ecosystem in the Seychelles called uh, Setdex, the Securities, Commodities and Derivatives Exchange, about 18 months ago. And that's been growing steadily as well. And we see a need for kind of hybrid assets that are both traditional and digital in that environment. It's a fascinating word of uh, market infrastructure that's evolving fast. But for this conversation, I'd like to go back to where it all started and ask you about your background and how you got started into finance and technology. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I graduated in uh, 1995 from the London School of Economics. And actually, surprisingly, I wasn't very tech savvy at that time. I'd done an economics, economic history type degree. And then as it so happened, I ended up as a graduate getting my first major role in Reuters, um, actually on April Fool's Day, 1996 of all times. And as I got into that space, it was all about real-time market data and trading. I've always been interested in stock exchanges, but then realized that more so than the stock exchanges themselves, if they'd all gone electronic or, or at that time, at the following year, they were going to be even more electronic and, and order-driven. Everything was about technology enabling the business, but the business guys didn't know about technology and the technology guys didn't know about business. And very quickly, I got interested in both. And then whilst I was still at Reuters, I got so interested that I thought, I don't really know about the technology, I'm using it. Uh, but then I ended up doing a master's at City University in business systems analysis and design, because I realized that this could be a really niche if you knew about both. And actually, since then, I've never looked back because I joined Instanet, which was a subsidiary of Reuters as an agency broker. They'd set up lots of markets in the US in the 1990s. And from there on in, co-founded a platform called Chiex that became the second largest um, exchange trading venue in Europe. And, and then after that, set up GMEX in earnest, where we spun out of a small stock exchange. So I think actually it's really interesting. Technology has been at the heart of everything I've done ever since, actually, and um, more so the case now as well. It seems now technology is prevalent in everything and is at the center of every conversation. In my times in the market, it was, from what I remember as a sales, and sometimes there was an important part of the technology, but we'd never talk about it. It seems now technology would be at the center of many more conversation, even between clients and, and salespeople in different firms. People want to understand what's going on. 
Yeah, it's really interesting because many organizations early on that we worked with, the technologists were always seen as the inferior species at that time. And when you go back 25 years, when I started my career, and it was, uh, okay, don't thank them if things go right, but lambaste them if things go wrong. You know, it's almost like being a goalkeeper in goal at football in many ways. And, and then from that here on in, it's changed because increasingly, you know, even on the business side, prerequisite is someone that's technology savvy, which doesn't mean you have to program or you have to configure a network, but you need to know how the underlying technology works and, and how the products or the service offering is enabled predicated on that. And a lot of that's been driven by the change that we've seen, you know, big techs come in and you know, everything we do is intertwined with technology, but it's been no different in markets because even the trading desks have got a lot savvier from algorithmic trading and program trading that started to develop early on when I joined Instinet in 99, but now is even more sophisticated and then artificial intelligence coming in and then on the post-grade side blockchain. So I think the need to understand technology is greater than ever before. What I would say is though, we see some people falling into the trap of using technology or, or, or referencing technology for technology's sake. Ultimately, we've got to remember that it solves a problem. And if it can solve the problem in a different way and more efficiently, then um, we're all for that. But if you're merely replicating something that uh, is already done and there's no value add, then you have to question the way that you're using it. And going back to your career, can you tell us a little bit about what led to the launch of it? Yeah, well, it was interesting. The name itself spurred a thousand conversations because it was Greek after the letter Kai, and then someone called it Chai, someone called it Chi. But we, we joked, we went into Greek at that time, the team, and we didn't do Greek letters of the alphabet very well. Internet had always been a pioneer as a company in terms of electronic trading networks. And since 1969, had something in the US. But in Europe, a lot of competition was stifled uh, by you know, certain rules that meant that the stock exchanges that have been around for hundreds of years, it was mandatory in most cases to trade on them or report to them as well. And so there were kind of barriers to entry, but a regulation called the Markets and Financial Instruments Directive that came in at that time changed it because it meant that competition could come in properly for the first time. But, it, but a lot of this infrastructure was still controlled by those exchanges. So we had to think about how to do this. Within Instinet, we, we had a big client franchise. We were already uh, trading big blocks of shares away from those exchanges and then reporting them. But we saw the opportunity and it actually is really interesting because when I first looked at it with the internal team, a project manager with an internet at that time, but we said, first things first, how do you get our data out there so people can see it? And at the time, Devil, Devin Venig, who became the eBay CEO, was running that division. So cheekily as a junior, I sent him an email and lo and behold, he got someone on it and we got our data out there on Reuters and it was visible. And then the next step was to make that tradable, which kind of spawned the whole Chiax initiative. Everyone thought it wouldn't work because liquidity had never moved. But we realized that actually, if you combined our institutional flow from the buy side clients, the asset managers and others, and you combine that with market making from these new quant driven players who are using technology, then all of a sudden you could do what the banks were doing in terms of market making, but that they had less of an appetite after the financial crisis. And, and that led to us, or, you know, ahead of the financial crisis as well, but that led to to do that. Then all of a sudden, we got 30% of the London Stock Exchange trading on us and 25% of all the other major European. It was phenomenally enjoyable and it was a great success story, but I learned an incredible amount from it. And the alumni all over all over the city and beyond now, they're doing different things. Yeah, what a rich experience this must be. And so can you tell us about how you moved on from that into your current role? Absolutely. So, you know, with Chayx, what we did was, you know, all of a sudden, 
all the major banks and trading houses came in as shareholders. And there was a subsequent exit uh, of that business to a large exchange group called Bats Global Markets, which in turn, there's always M&A in our game, you know that, George, as well. But there was a subsequent acquisition by CBOE Markets, a large US exchange group. But at the time, I, I saw an opportunity to move beyond that type of model uh, because I saw regulation was changing and there was a need to have an exchange in a box that you could then provide to others and make it much easier for people to set up or entities to set up exchanges and get market distribution because we'd seen those barriers to entry. Whilst I was waiting for the exit from Chayex, I was, I was um, advising a small exchange rival to the LSE's main market called Plus Markets. And they'd asked me to come in and now with my co-founder, who was then CTO, build an electronic business for them. And rather than do another X, we were embracing this exchange in a box model. Plus fell into trouble um, because listings were down during the financial crisis. Michael Spencer with ICAP bought the exchange, but we decided to do a management buyout of the technology and ICAP became our first customer. It was a great opportunity because sometimes you were a little bit scared to go your own way and you've done it entrepreneur, entrepreneurial in a way, but under a larger firm. This time the opportunity presented itself as moving house. We were having our first child at the time and I decided, yes, we're going we're gonna to do this, you know, and, and take on all the stress at once and effectively spun out and what was then GMEX, which was called Forum Trading Solutions, which was renamed, was created. And I think nine years later, we've never looked back. So uh, it'll be interesting when we have our 10 year anniversary. People talk to me about exits, but actually every year I say, we're only now just beginning to have fun, right? Because the market's evolving so fast and things are changing and you've got to reinvent yourself. That actually almost seems like a new role every other year, even since we last spoke about 18 months ago. Yeah, fascinating. And can I just ask a little bit more about Chayex? And by the way, being Greek, I would say it's she. Yes, I won't debate it. Uh, yeah. uh, and how was it moving from a company where you were the first employee to, I don't know, how many employees and people and activity did you have towards the end? Yeah, so it's interesting. In the end, we ended up having about 50 employees in that business at, at that time. And, and actually being the employee number one was very interesting. And then having set that up even before the entity and co-founding it, it was a phenomenal experience because in a large organization, you see one part of it, there's a lot more division of labor and you don't get to see something front to back and, and live in creating it and then forging it. So it, it was an excellent grounding because it taught me really how to become an entrepreneur. But actually at the time it was, it was taking risk in doing it or we spent out, but it effectively it was somebody else's money that you were, that you were using. Uh, and so you were getting paid to learn, but at the same time we created an incredible amount of value. You know, that investment in us was vindicated. We say we, because in the end, it's not about the individuals, it's a team. But actually those lessons held me in great stead because when I realized that actually after Chayex, uh, I was getting lots of offers, very senior roles um, to either lead exchanges or, 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 or to be number two in them, depending on the exchange. And some of them were very lucrative, but actually at that time I was ready for a new challenge and, and not to be completely co corporate, but entrepreneurial and do things and take more risk. And actually the lessons that I learned being an entrepreneur, then when, when I put up my own money and, and there was more risk, it, it allowed me to learn from those lessons and avoid some of those mistakes that you would make as a first time entrepreneur. And I think for every entrepreneur, it's, I remember one of my bosses at Chayex, Ed Nickel, who was there 
who ended up being very successful when he sold the internet business. He said, look, how is it going? I said, it's quite difficult. There's a lot of, there's a lot of pseudo barriers to entry. He said, Hiranda, who's American, if you don't swing with that, you don't make the home run. And that's resonated with me ever since because a lot of people kind of get put off by not trying. But if you don't try, sometimes you've got to take an educated guess, uh, assess, and that you've got to try with the view that, yes, you may succeed and you're always positive that you will. Every entrepreneur has highs and lows as well, and you've got to get through those, uh, which is always interesting. Was it a calculated risk? Were you considering a, a, a worst-case scenario, or were you just very focused on the opportunity ahead? Yeah, actually, it was a latter. We're very focused on the opportunity ahead. And I always believe that being positive forges um, more opportunity because it just instills an environment where that positive attitude drives more success. And, and, and so you didn't really consider failure. What I did do was just part caution. I said, okay, a large part of what I got from Chayx is going to be invested into what we do. And again, for the first 18 months, there was no salary, et cetera, and things like that. It was all put into the business. But I, I, I ring-fenced a, a smaller amount and said, okay, whatever happens, not going to touch that because that's almost like an insurance policy, which isn't a big one, but but you know it allows you to get back on your feet. So whilst you're always thinking that, you think actually some, sometimes it's important to be a little bit balanced because putting all your eggs in one basket. Entrepreneurs, there can be some cost fallacy as well, but people get very emotional about what they're doing. But ultimately, you're right with a family or, or looking at what you do going forward. Don't be scared of failure because there will be highs and lows, as I mentioned, but at the same time, just you know, hedge a little bit as well. It's not a bad thing. Now, going to, to GMAX, let's talk about uh, your recruitment. And I know you're operating in different countries. What are you looking for, for example, when you recruit someone? Yeah, it's an excellent question. Obviously, we've got, we started out in the UK and we've got an office here, albeit um, you know, more, now more and more people are getting used to working uh, remotely as well. At the Royal Exchange in the centre of the city hasn't been used that much. But then we also opened about four and a half years ago an office in Mauritius. And more, more recently, over the last year with Setdex, we also opened an office in the Seychelles. Everyone jokes, why these exotic holiday locations? But actually, when to us, it's always about work. And we say, yes, it's the island strategy. But in reality, we saw opportunity with a talent pool, bilingual that it is in, in, in really well-educated and good resources and less transient as a pool of you know, resources and human capital than some other centers where uh, there's much more competition for, for resources. Now, it's interesting. We've got people across eight different countries now, from India to Botswana to France. And, and ultimately, it's really interesting because what we found is since the pandemic, everyone talks about barriers to entry on technology coming down and more cross-border activity. But actually, the barriers to entry on employment have come down as well because people don't have to be transient and, and move somewhere to get roles now. A lot of the big banks from the West um, have been recruiting in India and you know, where people even in India were again moving to the big financial centers or big technology cities like Mumbai, Bangalore, Hyderabad. Now a lot of them are working in smaller centers and still being employed because there's no need to move and have the higher costs of, of moving. In some ways, that's also created competition for that labor pool and salaries have increased markedly during the pandemic because demand has gone up on, on fintech. But at the same time, it's been great for you know individuals uh, who are looking for employment because it's broadened their options and it's also made the labor market and what they do much more international as well. And we have conversations every week with the major banks, you know, tier one, tier two institutions. And we've got people on the call from 
Tel Aviv in Israel, to to guys in, in India, to guys in the US, to guys in the UK, which you'd expect. But there's more and more people from emerging centers on. We've got a project at the moment with a large integrator, and we've got teams in Poland and Ukraine that we're working with, and we ourselves are looking at Portugal now as a development center. So it's really exciting, actually. I think uh, for an individual coming into this market, if you're willing to look b- broader than the country that you live in, and the possibilities are endless, actually. And how does how does the formal education and diploma plays a part of it? Is it is it an essential thing, or can now people work learn at some other parts of on their own or through a different path? It's interesting because people used to make a lot of degrees and graduate trainee programs and going through that whole thing. And my experience of university until I did my masters in technology, you know, business technology, essentially that was more practical. My experience was when I came out after three years of my undergrad, I wasn't prepared for work at all. And in the olden days, the UK system, now everything's renamed university, but the polytechnics focused on working four-year degrees, one-year work experience. And when, when you came out, you were really prepared. Now, of course, it's quite difficult because undergrads are looking for internships because they realize that valuable experience is important whilst um, they're undertaking their degrees. We've been, we've been fortunate. We've signed up to a few internship programs and we, we've got interns with us now, you know, one from Singapore working with us on global projects and another one from Malaysia as well. With anything now, going back to your question, we look at kind of practical experience where there's no practical experience. We look at the capacity to learn and the ability to think outside the box and think laterally rather than vertically in fixed mindset. And for us, that's more important than a degree, unless in certain uh, professions, let's say you're recruiting in an accountancy discipline or elsewhere, then you need some kind of professional qualification or the legal discipline, professional services. But otherwise, we're very open because some of the best entrepreneurs have fallen out of college and dropped out and uh, done things. Others haven't even been to university. I've come across um, you know, recent entrepreneurs in fintech ventures that are incredibly successful. One of them hasn't graduated, but then set up his own business, hasn't even, hasn't even gone into employment as well. So I think you've got to have an open mindset on this because there's some great people out there with and without education, a formal education in terms of a degree. Yeah, this landscape is evolving so quickly. And would you have, it's a bit of a generic question, but would you have some advice to younger generation that are interested in this field of finance and technology? What would you advise them? So the younger generation have a distinct advantage over, let's say, my generation when I started employment 25 years back, because when I look at my children, you know, one's 14 and one's 10, the way that they leverage technology, my daughter's better at PowerPoint than I am. And I thought it was reasonably good now over the years, too many investment decks and pitch decks. But, but you know, they, they've grown up with technology and they're increasingly savvy with it. My daughter was talking to me on next topic of, uh, that we'll talk about subsequently, you know, about NFTs and the whole social media angle and things like that. So kids already are very interested. What I would say is that that interest, they're beginning to already think about it and try and apply that in a practical sense. So if you're interested in fintech and finance, I, I think it's much the same as you, you mean to go on, take that, try and ask questions and absorb from those around you uh, and see how that applies to what you really want to do. And I remember 
Interestingly, I got into stock markets and I realized that I wanted to do something to do with stock markets because in the olden days, there was the old teletext screens on TV that had the share prices. And my father used to look at those before and after work religiously every day. And I got interested in what he was doing. Then all I could see was he's not on a TV screen. But that's what got me into finance and in turn got what got me interested in technology. So I think the younger generation should keep up that interest. And I think any work experience is important. My, my daughter's already thinking about when she's 16, how she takes uh, work experience in this space. I said to her, I'm not doing you any favors. Go and, go and place yourself in a job like anyone else because I had no nepotism there. But, but as youngsters, I think it's important to think about that because even though your career aspirations may change, it gives you a flavor for what work is really. And that could be anything from, I've now seen, I've now seen 16 year olds that are doing A-levels in my daughter's school and they're, they're in Waitrose doing a multitude of roles to others that are having work experience in banks. It doesn't really matter. Yeah, so basically you have the chance to go for it and, and try it out without waiting really. Yeah, it goes back to that whole adage. It's even as an entrepreneur, why isn't everyone an entrepreneur? Because they wait around or they am and are. And I'm sure you've got many friends, George, where they, they say, okay, I'm going to do X and Y and Z. But you've got to put the whole hard yards in and you've got to make it happen because sitting on the bench, uh, it just doesn't happen. And I would say if you want to do something, go and do it, try it. If you don't like it, it allows you to try something else. It sounds like a cliche, but they really should follow their kind of dreams and aspirations because those opportunities are much more abundant now because the technology barriers to entry are much, much lower. And through social media and connectivity, they're much more wired into these opportunities than you and I ever could have been, right? They use that information. They can use it to develop their education, their career as well. And we're seeing them do it as well. These kids are much smarter than I was, you know, when I was their age and uh, much more street smart as well. Going back to your CV on LinkedIn and all these involvements, I wanted to get a glimpse how it works for an executive in your position and how you juggle all those roles. And I'm just going to read a few. Fincomeco, Arabian Boards, Digital Partner Networks, and many more, right? Yeah, it's, it's interesting because what I love about what I do is that no two days are ever the same. So you don't have that kind of feeling of Groundhog Day and repetition because actually the day is very busy and because you're working across multiple time zones, you know, you can wake up sometimes to 100 emails, which actually sometimes you think actually now with the pandemic, you're starting earlier and finishing later. As you, it's that demarcation point at home. But at the same time, no two days are ever the same. And actually, it really does feel like an adventure. What's important actually is, okay, some of those are non-directorships or, or, or some are kind of synergistic roles to what we do already. I think sometimes you see that point and even investors and others raise a point. And it may look like we're doing a lot of different things, but we always have a core focus on, and, and I do personally, on um, the core bread and butter, market infrastructure, digitization of assets, that opportunity and, and how that trends into, transcends into digital finance lowers the barriers to entry and reduces friction and cost and makes things more efficient. And, and I think I've always been motivated uh, by changing um, the landscape and changing the way things are done rather than being motivated by money. Because I think if you enjoy what you do, uh, you focus on that and you drive change, the success and with it, yeah, again, the remuneration, everything else just comes uh, with it. And, and so I think it may seem like a lot of different roles. Um, you know, again, I've reduced a little bit of that uh, over the last year or two as well for even more focus. But at the core of what I do is this offer as a service, platform as a service, and ultimately that's 
driven by regulated finance. And, and so essentially, you know, without any entrepreneur focus is important, but at the same time, that doesn't necessarily mean you have to just do one role because uh, a multitude of roles sometimes can actually help improve all of them and make it better and, and ensure that they're all even more successful. Yeah, and I think that's also a, a sort of a trend. But it's very interesting what you mentioned about the money because this podcast is about investing, but you're not the first one who says that the key is not that. It's to have a higher purpose. And I will finish with uh, one more question, which is a bit personal about money. Is how do you like to invest your own money? When I first started out, I was investing, following in my father's footsteps in the stock market. And I always found, because if you're technically investing, you've got to on the pulse all the time. And if you're fundamentally investing, you've got to do a lot of research and, and reading. And then with long hours with work and everything else, the focus wasn't always there. So actually what I naturally found out was even though I was enabling others, the firm was enabling others to trade all over the world, my strength lay in private investing, you know, in private companies or incubating startup companies, as well as investing in some of them and building value. And actually that's become a real hobby because, okay, we've incubated a lot of interesting projects, but we've also come together with other co-founders and I've invested in projects as well from a very early and seeing some of those grow is incredibly exciting that on that journey. And then some of the partners and entrepreneurs that I've ended up working with and continue to work with is also incredibly, not only exciting, but you learn an incredible amount because everyone has a different perspective and background. So I think for the foreseeable future, I continue to be excited and I'll continue to uh, privately invest. But of course, there'll always be proponents of public markets, which, which equally offer opportunity. So I, I guess it's finding your niche and what you're good at, really. I remember just uh, listening to a podcast about the founder of Blackstone, so the giant uh, private equity group. And apparently his, his starting point was a bit similar. He was working in public equity as an analyst and he found it frustrating that even public markets, he didn't have the whole information, whereas in yeah. private markets, he can be fully involved, have the full information, and, and therefore it's finding it more enjoyable. So there you go. Great mind meet. And I thank you very much for all your answers here under. We're going to finish here this first part, and uh, we're going to continue later to talk about tokenization. So I'm very excited to hear your thoughts on it. Yeah, I look forward to it. And thank you very much for having me.